So <clears throat> we are now jumping back into our series in Christology. And if you remember that Christology is the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus Christ. If there's one thing that we need to get right in our Christian life, it is an understanding of who Jesus Christ is, but also what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we have learned thus far that Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. That he is one person with two natures. That he is truly God and that he's truly man. We learned also of the various things that go about him being truly God and truly man. Since he is truly God, that means that he is impeccable, which means that Jesus Christ is unable to sin, even with, with respect to his human nature. We also learned that since the eternal son took on human flesh, it doesn't mean that he became a sinner, but what that means is he came in the likeness of sinners. Since Jesus Christ is truly man, then he took on all of what it means to be man. He got tired. He got weary. He got hungry. But also, the eternal son assumed a human mind, a human will, human emotions. And that's what we talked about last time we were together. Since Jesus Christ is truly man, then he must have real and true emotions. But also, he must have faith. In fact, Jesus Christ is the quintessential man of faith. He teaches for us what it means for us Christians to have faith, but also, he teaches us Christians how we are to have the Holy Spirit govern our emotions. So last time we were together, we spoke of the faith of Christ. And then we looked at the emotions of Christ. And all of this is, is dealing with the work of Jesus Christ. What went into Jesus Christ saving us from our sins? What did he have to do? And when we think about what Jesus Christ had to do in order for us to be saved, normally what we think is, he had to die for us. And no doubt, Jesus Christ had to die for us. But also, Jesus Christ had to live for us. We are saved by the death of Christ, but we are also saved by the life of Christ. And in the life of Christ, we see a life that is far different than any other life that one who has ever lived. In fact, Jesus Christ can take on that title that he is without a doubt the most interesting man who has ever lived. Think about all the things that Christ has done in his life. Think about the things that he said. Think about the things that he did. And those, those things that he did is what we want to pay attention to this evening. This evening we want to consider 
the miracles of Jesus Christ. The miracles of Jesus Christ. And the miracles of Christ are important in the life of Christ because in all four Gospels, they mention at least one miracle of Jesus Christ. In fact, John says that toward the end of his letter, if there's not a, enough books in the world that could fully write down all of the things that Jesus Christ did in his life, and he's speaking of all the good works and the miracles that he did. So the miracles of Christ are an essential part of Jesus Christ's ministry and earthly life. So what I want to do is I want to look at just four miracles of Christ, give some application of what they mean. But before we do that, there's two questions that we have to ask. The first question is, why did Jesus Christ perform miracles? Why did Jesus Christ perform miracles? And the second question, how did Christ perform miracles? How did he perform miracles? The first question of why, and the second question, how? Let's consider the first question. Why did Jesus perform miracles? Well, in that question, we're all asking, what is the significance of the miracles of Jesus Christ? What are the significance? What's the significance of the miracles of Jesus Christ? In the Gospel of John, chapter 30, verses 31 and 30, uh, 30 31, it reads this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you have life in his name. Notice the word that John uses. John identifies Christ's miracles not simply as miracles. He doesn't refer to Christ's miracles as wonders, as extraordinary events. But John refers to Christ's miracles as signs. Signs. Christ's miracles are first and foremost signs. And as signs, the miracles of Christ pointed to two permanent realities. The miracles of Christ pointed to two permanent realities. First, Christ's miracles were signs that pointed to his office, his role of Messiah. It pointed to his role or office as Messiah. Now, the word Messiah simply means the anointed one. And as we read the Old Testament, we see that Israel was anticipating one who would be their Messiah. They were anticipating one who will come, who would be from the line of David, who would be the true anointed one who will save Israel. 
And as we come to the New Testament, we read these words from John the baptizer in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. It reads this, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Here John identifies Jesus not merely as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, but as the long-awaited Messiah. That was John's way of saying, look here, here's the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God, without spot or blemish, who has come not just for the nation of Israel. And that's what we have to understand also, friends, that Jesus Christ did not come for merely an ethnic group. He did not come strictly for the people of Israel, but rather Jesus came for the whole world. From every ethnic group, from every people, every tongue, every tribe, from every nation. In fact, when John the Baptist sent a messenger to Jesus to identify if Jesus is truly who he said he was, Jesus pointed to his miracles He pointed to the works that he has done as signs of him being the fulfillment of the one that was to come in the Old Testament. Jesus says in Luke 7, verse 22, And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. We also see Jesus pointing to his miracles as signs of his Messiahship as he preached in a synagogue in Luke chapter 4. Quoting Isaiah 61, Jesus says in Luke 4, 18 through 21, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blinds, to set a liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here, Jesus claims that he is the fulfillment of that messianic uh, 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 prophecy. He is the fulfillment of that one who was spoken of in Isaiah 61. He is the spirit-anointed Messiah, whose miracles that he does fulfill the Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah. So this is the first aspect of Christ's miracles that we must get right. That Christ's miracles are signs that point to his messiahship. They're signs that point that he is the true messiah, the true savior of the world. The second aspect of Christ's miracles is that they are signs, hear me now, they are signs of future spiritual realities. They are signs of future spiritual realities. And This is a point that we're going to elaborate more on in the second point when we consider the miracles of Christ. But when we say that the miracles of Christ are signs that point to future spiritual realities, what I mean by that is the miracles of Jesus tell stories that show analogies to the grand story of redemption. They are stories that show analogies to the grand story of redemption. In other words, every miracle is a small picture 
that points to the saving work of Jesus Christ. Every miracle is a, is a miniature acted out scene, a miniature acted out event that points to the saving work of Jesus Christ. And we have to hold that thought as we move on and consider the miracles of Christ. The second question that we want to answer is how did Jesus Christ perform miracles? How did Jesus Christ perform miracles? Now, it's of common belief that when Jesus Christ performed miracles, he did so because he is God in flesh. Many of us might think that when Jesus Christ performed a miracle, he set forth and put forth his divine prerogatives, that it was his divine nature. It was the eternal son doing the miracles. But what I want to argue is that Jesus Christ did all miracles as man empowered by the Holy Spirit. That Jesus Christ did all miracles as man empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Puritan John Owen says this, All of Christ's miracles were performed by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the human Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Son, no less than the Spirit of the Father. And here's his logic here of why the Holy Spirit is the one that enables Jesus Christ, according to his human nature, to do miracles. The Holy Spirit is the immediate operator of all divine acts of the Son himself, even upon the human nature, because the Holy Spirit is the perfecter of all the works of God. In other words, all that Christ did in his life and his ministry, he did so as man, empowered by the Holy Spirit, even his miracles. When he preached, he preached as man, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He did miracles as man, empowered by the Holy Spirit without measure. Again, consider what Christ says in Luke 4. When he goes to the synagogue, he opens the scroll to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. As Christ healed the sick, as he casted out demons, as he raised the dead, he was doing so as man, empowered by the Spirit, thus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. In Matthew chapter 12, the man who was blind, mute, and demon-possessed was brought to Christ for healing. And as Jesus Christ healed this man, the Pharisees said, it is only by Beelzebub, the, the, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. In other words, it's because Jesus Christ is of demons that he has the power to cast out demons. Consider the Christ's rebuttal to the Pharisees. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But it is if, um, but it is, but it is, uh, but if it is by the Spirit of God 
that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God is upon you. See what Jesus is saying here. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is upon you. That's what Christ's miracles also point out, that even though he did so, he did his miracles as men, empowered by the Spirit, it was to signify that the kingdom of God has arrived. That the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. And one day the kingdom of God will be consummated as the clouds break through and Christ returns for his people. Here Christ is saying that the one who Isaiah 61 spoke of is in your midst. And lastly, Peter in Acts 10 summarizes the miracles of Christ in this way. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth and with the Holy Spirit and with power. Anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. What did he do? He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Why would Jesus Christ need the Holy Spirit with regard to miracles if he did so according to his divine nature? But here, Peter says that God was with him as he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. I'll end this with a great quote from Thomas Winandi. He says here, Within the incarnation, the Son of God never does anything as God. If he did... He would be acting as God in man. This the incarnation would never permit. All that Jesus Christ did as the Son of God was done as a man, whether it was eating carrots or raising someone from the dead. If he may have raised Lazarus from the dead by his divine power, or better, by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it was nonetheless as a man that he did so. All that Christ did, whether he laughed, whether he cried, whether he uh, told a joke. I heard a recent interview that the, one of the most profound questions that you can ask is, how come Jesus never t- uh, uh, said a joke and laughed? Well, you don't understand that Jesus Christ is truly human. Uh, all that Christ did, eating carrots, going to the restroom, he did so as man, but also miracles. He did so as man, empowered by the Holy Spirit without measure. How do we know that? Because if we read on, what happens with the disciples? They do miracles like Jesus Christ because they are empowered by the Holy Spirit without measure. Jesus Christ was the first throughout his life. All that the Son did um, was not the works of God within a man, but as truly a man. And all the Son, uh, Son of God did as a man was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So these are the things that we must consider as we move on and consider four of the uh, miracles of Christ. That the miracles of Christ point to his Messiahship. They point to future spiritual realities. And also all these miracles show that Jesus Christ was empowered by the Holy Spirit without measure. So what I want to do now is just look at four miracles, four examples taken from that, from that um, uh, template or, or, or that examples that we gave of, of how we are to read the miracles. Let's consider the miracle of Christ feeding the 5,000. Now remember that these miracles point to 
future spiritual realities. They are miniature events that point to the saving work of God. In John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, we have recorded for us the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with only five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish. Now, all four Gospels record this miracle. But what John does for us is he records for us the aftermath of the miracle. He gives us a commentary of what happened after the miracle. We come to verse 22 of John 6, which is a day after the miracle. So this is a day after Jesus has performed the feeding of the 5,000. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not yet entered the boat with his disciples, but that, he was by his, by, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum as seeking Jesus. When they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your, because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man will give. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Notice what Christ is doing here when he speaks to these people. Jesus Christ is setting a parallel between the physical food, which were the loaves of bread, and the spiritual food that gives eternal life. He's drawing a parallel between the loaves of bread and the true bread of life. Jesus then picked up the theme of manna and used it to direct them to the true bread from heaven. He says in verse 20, 32 and 33, Truly, truly, I say to you, was it not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven? But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then he declares in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Here Christ is saying that both the manna from the time of Moses, the manna that God sent down from heaven to feed the Israelites while they were in wilderness wandering, that manna and the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 have symbolic significance. The manna that came in a miraculous way, even in its miraculous character, did not make it a source of eternal life, but only helped serve to sustain temporal life. The manna from heaven only served to ease the grumbling of the Israelites for a limited time. It didn't feed them for eternity. And in the same way, the bread that multiplied to feed the 5,000 people only helped sustain physical life. It only fed them for a little bit of time. And each of these miracles were used to point to something deeper. The manna from heaven 
and Christ feeding the 5,000 pointed to something far beyond them just filling up their guts. But it pointed to eternal life. It pointed to that which sustains. It is Jesus Christ that gives eternal life. It is Jesus Christ that the manna from heaven was all about. It is Jesus Christ that the feeding of the 5,000 was all about. Again, he says, for the bread of God. Hear that. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What Jesus is saying is, I am the true manna that comes down from the Father of heaven. I am the true bread that gives and sustains life forever. This is what he says in verses 54 through 56. Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I am him. Simply put, eternal life comes only to those who feed upon Jesus Christ. Eternal life comes only to those who feed upon the flesh and drink upon the blood of Jesus Christ. So the miracle of the feeding 5,000 has a symbolic significance that goes far beyond Christ's power. I think we think that at times, well, man, look at this miraculous event. It's, it's showing off Christ's power. But rather, this event goes far beyond authenticating Jesus Christ as the true messenger of God. But it shows in symbolic form what Jesus Christ is doing in his life, death, and resurrection. The miracle of the 5,000 shows the saving work of Christ. It shows that he came to bring eternal life and to give everlasting spiritual nourishment to everyone who has faith in him. So the feeding of the 5,000 is much more than just people getting fed. It's much more than showing off the power of Jesus Christ but rather it's a picture of the eternal life that Christ gives to those who eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. For he is the true bread that has come down from heaven. Let's consider another miracle, and that is the healing of the man born blind recorded in John 9. Now before this miracle, we have in John 8 verse 12, Jesus declaring, and stay with me here, Jesus declares that he is the light of the world. Leading up to this miracle of the man being born blind and being healed, Jesus is, is, is speaking of him being the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but I will, but will have light of life. And we read in John 9, verse 5, just before the healing of the blind man, Jesus made a similar declaration it reads, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What Christ is doing is similar to what he was doing at the feeding of the 5,000. 
He's drawing a parallel between those who walk in the light and those who walk in the darkness. Those who walk in the light have true life, and those who walk in the darkness are spiritually blind. This is what he says in chapter 9, verses 39 through 41. For judgment I have come in this world, and those that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to him, If you are blind, you have no guilt. But now you say, We see. Your guilt remains. And as we come to verses 6 and 7 of chapter 9, we have recorded for us the healing of the man who was born blind. And this is one of the coolest miracles, I would add, of all of Christ's miracles. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. He made mud, put it on the guy's eyes. He said, go wash your eyes out. He came back and was no longer blind. Now we read that the Pharisees and the people who are there interrogated the man. Eventually they casted the man out of the city. And Christ went about looking for the man. And when he did, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The greater significance of this miracle is the physical miracle of the healing of the blind man went hand in hand, went perfectly in sync with the spiritual work of the blind man. The healing of the blind man's sight was Christ's way of giving the blind man spiritual sight. And saints, this was the mission of Christ throughout his entire ministry, to give spiritual eyes to those who have been born blind. Jesus says in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In John 1.18, Jesus makes known the Father how one comes to the illumination of the Father is only through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the light. For this is what the psalmist says in chapter 36, verse 9. In your light, we see light. In the light of the Holy Spirit, we see Jesus Christ, who is light, the true light. So to summarize this miracle, we see that The physical miracle of the blind man illuminates the whole purpose of why the eternal son was sent to redeem people and give them a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ wasn't just healing this blind man because he's been blind for since birth and he's had a hard life. But rather he was showing something about his mission. He was showing something about his saving work to give sight to those who are spiritually blind. Let's consider another miracle, and that is the raising of his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11. In the story of the raising of Lazarus, we read that before Jesus came to the tomb, Lazarus has been dead for four days. 
We pick up the story in John 11, verses 20 and 26. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, lives and believes in me shall never die. Notice the pattern that's happening. Jesus is doing the same thing that he did in the feeding of the 5,000 and the healing of the blind man. He's redirecting people's physical needs to their spiritual needs. Yes, I know that your brother, you desire for your brother to be raised from the dead. But first and foremost, we must speak of your spiritual condition. Where are you at spiritually? And who do you say that I am? I am the resurrection. I am the one who gives true life before healing Martha's brother. He first heals Martha. He redirects Martha's needs from physical to spiritual. Mary and Martha are concerned over the death of their brother, as they should be. But Jesus is more concerned over their spiritual soul. And note, saints, that as we consider the miracles of Christ, and as we consider the life of Christ, we are to take note of this, that Jesus Christ viewed every single person from the vantage point of eternity. He viewed every single person, not the color of their skin, not how tall, how strong they are, but where they will end up on the last day. Where are you at spiritually? That should be of some use for us. That we are all to look to people from the perspective of heaven and hell. Where are you at? And where are you going? Martha responds, after Jesus says, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So as Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus, we read in verses 41 through 44, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said on this account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he come said these things, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a linen cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go out. I think out of all the miracles of Christ, this might be the one that I would want to see the most. So saints, what is the significance of this miracle recorded for us? What do we learn from this? What is the, the greater and deeper significance? Well, simply put, the raising of Lazarus has a particularly close tie to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the raising of Lazarus 
is a small picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lazarus walking out the tomb is analogous to Christ walking out the tomb. But we have to keep this in mind. That's where the similarity starts, and that's where the similarities end. Lazarus' resurrection is not on the same level as Christ's resurrection. First, Lazarus walked out of the tomb with his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. He came out literally looking like a mummy. But when Jesus walked out the tomb, Peter said that when he looked inside the tomb, he saw Christ's linen cloths lying there. And he saw that his face cloth was somewhere separate, folded up. That's one difference. That the grave clothes were not worthy to hold on to the glorified, resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Secondly, when Lazarus came back to life, he was brought back to the same kind of life that he had before he died. In other words, Lazarus, although he was raised to life, he was also subject back to death. It wasn't as if Lazarus was raised back to life and then he was going to live forever. Lazarus was going to die again. However, when Jesus was raised from the dead, death itself was defeated. Jesus was raised to everlasting, eternal life. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.20. Jesus is the firstfruits of those who are fallen asleep. Paul refers to Christ as the first fruits. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is the first human being ever to be restored to life. It doesn't mean that Jesus is the first ever to be resurrected because we have testimonies. We have records in the Old Testament of small children being raised from the dead. We have Lazarus that was raised from the dead before Jesus. So when Paul says that Christ is the first fruits, he means that Jesus Christ in his humanity, was the first to enter into that everlasting, unfailing life of the resurrection. In other words, when you look at Jesus, you have a picture of the life that's to come. Saints, how do you know that one day all the graves will be open from all parts of the earth? Because on that first day, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We know because our head was first. Because Christ is the first fruits. He's the first fruits of a royal harvest. And one day that harvest will be consummated. One day you will rise from the dead. You won't be the walking dead, but you'll be resurrected to glorified eternal life. You will have a body like his. Jesus Christ is the first of a multitude of millions and billions and trillions that will raise and be rose from the dead. The miracle of Christ offers for us a small picture of the eternal and spiritual life that we have in Jesus Christ. That's what the miracle of the resurrection does. 
The raising of Lazarus was a type or shadow of something greater that's to come. Lazarus was a type of Christ. And Jesus Christ walks out the tomb. Now let's consider one last miracle. And that is Jesus calming the storm. Jesus calming the storm. We read in Matthew 8, verses 23 to 27. And when he had gotten into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm of the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. Jesus was asleep during this time. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Powerful miracle, is that not? This miracle, no doubt, displays for us the power of Christ and that he had to calm the sea, to calm the winds. But it also speaks of something much more powerful than that. We read that the disciples were in a boat along with Jesus. Jesus was asleep during this time. And the word says that the boat was being swamped by the waves. It was literally being thrown, tossed to and fro by the waves. The waves almost literally drowned the boat. The disciples, of course, feared that the boat and all who were in it were about to go down. They were about to die. They cry out, save us, Lord. Notice the word that they use. We are perishing. They ask to be saved from perishing, from physically dying by drowning in the sea. This narrative brings up a fundamental issue that we all must deal with. That is life and death. Ever since Adam's fall into sin, we all are subject to death. And we all are slowly perishing away. The storm presents to us an intense and dramatic form of the threat of death. Friends, think of the symbolism of water. The watery situation is an effective picture of the threat of death. Water pictures for us death in itself. Human beings cannot live in water. And the stormy water is the most threatening to human life. I mean, if you ever went out to the beach and went out to that point that they don't want you to go beyond, you discover quite quickly how dangerous it is. And how quickly your life can go. So imagine being in a small boat in the middle of a storm. The Bible uses the symbolism of water to describe the threat of death. Sea in the Bible is usually related to death. The psalmist says in Psalm 69 verse 1 and 2, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink deep in myrrh where there is no foothold. I've come to the deep waters. 
and the flood sweeps over me. Think of the great flood in Noah's day. Put all of this together and we see that the miracle of Christ calming the storm symbolizes Jesus' power to save his people from their greatest enemy, and that is death. Jesus calming the storm is a picture of Christ's saving power to save us from our greatest threat, and that is death itself. But not just physical death, but spiritual death as well. The waters don't just symbolize physical death, but they symbolize symbolize spiritual death. It is Jesus Christ who leaped into the deep sea of God's wrath to save his people from dying. Christ drinks the waters of God's wrath in order to save us from drowning. Now, there are many preachers who use this story and preach from this text and say that all this story and miracle is teaching is about the storms of life. This is all it's really saying. That the storms are used as a metaphor to speak of troubles and distresses that afflict us daily. And that if we trust in Christ, that we will have peace through the storm. Now, I'm not going to deny that. That you will have peace in the middle of a storm. But saints, more so, what this miracle is teaching us is not simply the mundane troubles of life in the mundane and ordinary storms of life. But it's teaching us of that final trouble, of that final storm, that is death itself. The storm of life is death. So the application of the calming of the storm speaks of the Christian soul in Christ. The calming of the storm speaks of the calmness of the Christian soul that is in Christ. Although there is storms in our life, we can say like the great hymn, our soul is well. When all is going around us crazy and mad, and when death is near, we can be like Christ in the boat, sleeping calmly. That's what the miracle teaches us, that Jesus Christ is our peace. So what we see from these four examples of miracles is that each of these miracles are not just random events. They're not just events thrown in there to make Jesus Christ look cool and look powerful. They're not events that merely display the power of the Holy Spirit and the life and ministry of Christ. But each miracle teaches us that history is moving somewhere. That history is going somewhere. That each miracle is pointing to the greatest miracle, the greatest event, and that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So friends, as we close, what are some of the takeaways from this lesson on the miracles of Christ? Well, first, we see that a right understanding of Christ's miracles helps us rightly read and interpret the Bible. A right understanding of Christ's miracles help us rightly read 
and interpret the Bible. The Bible is a collection of 66 books and letters. But at its center, at its core, the Bible is about Jesus Christ. From start to finish, it's all about Jesus Christ. And when one reads of the miracles of Christ, and this is common in our day, we look at the miracles and we only see them as examples for us to follow. For example, since Christ fed the 5,000, then we are to go out and feed those who are hungry. Or since Christ went about healing the paraplegics and those who were uh, sick and ill, then we should help those of similar kind. That the miracles of Christ are merely an example for us to follow. Friends, the Bible is not about giving us examples of how we are to live, but rather the Bible is the revelation of the glory of God in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Because what happens if you view the Bible, if you view miracles as examples? You are approaching the Bible from a me, from a man-centered point of view. What do I need to do in light of this? Rather, what has God done in sending his son, Jesus Christ? In other words, each miracle is not about merely our response and how we are to live as good Christian citizens. But rather, each miracle is about the cross of Christ. Each miracle is about the resurrection of Christ. Each miracle is about the saving power of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are to interpret Christ's miracles in the same way we are to interpret the Bible. As Christ at its center Christ as its focus. Secondly, the miracles of Christ authenticate his ministry as the Messiah. Again, when John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus, they asked if he was the one who was to come. And Jesus says, go look at my works. Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Leopards are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Everything that has been prophesied in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah was fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's Christ's miracles that authenticate, that show that he is who he said that he was. And thirdly, the miracles of Christ help us appreciate more our salvation in Christ. The miracles of Christ help us appreciate more the miracles of Christ. Each miracle of Christ points to how far, how deep we have fallen in Adam. Friends, we were amongst the 5,000 who were begging for food. Our sin has left us spiritually hungry and deprived from spiritual nourishment. We were that blind man who Christ healed. Our sin has caused us to walk in darkness. We were spiritually blind to all the things of God. We were Lazarus, were we not? Spiritually, dead in our trespasses and sins. We were those disciples who feared for their life on the boat because of our sin. Death is an enemy. 
whom we can never beat. But friends, God worked a great and miraculous miracle in our lives, did he not? And that is why I'm so puzzled when people say that God doesn't do miracles in this day and age. Friends, I'm looking at miracles that God has done. In fact, this morning we learned about what true repentance is. But in order for you to have true repentance, a miracle must first take place. That you first must be given the gift of faith and repentance. Repentance itself is not merely something that we do, but it's something that's been given to us as a gift and a miracle from God. None of us want to repent. Even while we were dead in our sins, none of us could repent. But the greatest miracle happened that when the tomb was rolled away, the Spirit was poured out in greater measure. And each one of us have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But what happened before that is that God blew wind over each one of our dry bones. The miracle is that he took out our heart of stone and he, he gave us a heart of flesh. He gave us a new will, new desires. He put the law upon our hearts to love him and obey him. Friends, Jesus Christ is the great miracle worker then and he is the great miracle worker now. Miracles are still happening till this day. And each time someone bows their knee to Christ, it's one more miracle that Jesus Christ has done. So what do we learn from the miracles of Christ? It is that they authenticate that he is the Messiah. It speaks of the saving power and work of Christ. And it teaches us how much we are to appreciate our salvation in Christ. Because apart from our salvation being a gift from God, it's the greatest miracle from God. And saints, as we come to the Lord's table, we are to remember what Jesus Christ has done in his life and in his death. We read that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And friends, as we consider ourselves in as we consider ourselves in the faith, as we put ourselves up to that standard of God, we are to do so by considering whether or not we are truly appreciative of the saving work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus says to remember his saving work. Again, we are to grab hold of his saving work. We are to live under the cross. We are to look upon our bloody Savior. Friends, if you have sinned throughout the week, friends, if you have sinned this morning or during our rest, 
then you are a perfect candidate to fellowship with Christ. Jesus Christ's table is not for perfect people, but it's for sinners. It's for those who have weak faith. Because those who have weak faith can lay hold of a strong Christ. And that's what we do here at the, at the Lord's Supper. We come with our weak faith and we feed upon a strong Christ. So let's take a moment now. Let's evaluate ourselves and let's discern the body. Let's judge ourselves. Like Pastor Antonio spoke of this morning, let's have a godly sorrow over our sin. Let's look at our sin. Let's consider our sin and then let's fellowship with our Christ.